Hi there, and welcome to the Counterweight Podcast, where we talk about how we can strive for a world in which freedom and reason are at the forefront of all human society. In this week's podcast, we'll be speaking with Steven Pinker. He's the Johnstone Family Professor in the Department of Psychology at Harvard University. Also the author of 12 books, notably The Language Instinct, The Blank Slate, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Enlightenment Now, and his newest book, Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters. In this podcast, we discuss reason, rationality, enlightenment values, and their interplay with the polarization that is affecting our communities today. Join us. Dr. Pinker, thank you for joining us today on the Polarized Podcast, Counterweight's Polarized Podcast. I am the host today. My name is Jennifer Richmond. And in this podcast, we're looking at like kind of the roots of polarization. And you touch on a, what we think is a lot of, we have a lot of questions in your most recent book on rationality. So one of the things you say is you think that, cons- or you say that conspiracy theories, fake news, they're really not a new problem. And I completely agree with you, but are they getting worse? I mean, is there more, you know, misinformation is not a new thing, but it can spread so much quicker than say misinformation in the past. In the past. I mean, and there's even statistics out there now that says, you know, again, I don't think this is a new statistic, but 70% of fake news travels, you know, is, is more captured than, than the truth. So is it getting worse, I guess, is my first question. And if it is, how is that affecting rationality and in, in our liberal values? Uh, well, I think fake news is a small part of the problem. It's uh, mainly a form of entertainment that, that titillates people who are already polarized. <clears throat> but, um, and, and before we had dissemination of fake news on um, uh, social media, we had supermarket tabloids, we had uh, uh, urban legends, things that were told to you by a friend of a friend. But there's no question that polarization has increased. And the public opinion polling shows that, uh, that uh, larger percentages of Americans think the worst of people who differ from them in their politics. They're um, uh, uh, more opposed to, say, one of their children marrying someone with a right. politics, more likely to say that they are um, uh, uh, stupid or evil. So that, that is a real phenomenon. Yeah. Social media may be one of the accelerators, but it's not the only one. There is also residential segregation by education uh, and professional segregation more and more. Higher education is a credential for entry into professions and a uh, the main way in which we sort ourselves. We live in neighborhoods uh, with people who have the same level of education, people who go to the university, leave behind their rural or uh, outer suburban um, places of origin and uh, crowd together in university towns and, and uh, gentrified uh, inner cities. Another contributor has been other kinds of media such as cable network news and uh, AM talk radio, which is an enormously polarizing force, probably more more potent even than, than Twitter or Facebook, at least so far. That's interesting. You, you took me, uh, this was a later question, but I'm going to go there now. I think as we're talking about polarization, the other thing that I notice is political sectarianism. And what I mean by that is instead of religion, 
consuming a lot of our lives. We know that the increase in religion or the decrease in religion is notable, but there's been this increase in almost a religious fervor towards politics. Now, I wonder because you've, you know, I think, or at least the way I interpret some of what you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, in some ways, religion and some things that we believe in are not rational. But I'm wondering if there is a collective rationality in religion. And let me just give you a little bit more reason why I explain that. In religion, even if there's some irrationality or some beliefs that are not rational, I believe that the collective rationality that I would argue is there's this sense of grace and mercy and forgiveness and in political sectarianism, which has taken the place of religion, but with almost the same fervor, there is no forgiveness, there's no mercy. And I wonder if that also in some ways is that that transition to a kind of political, well, not a tra- to political sectarianism is, do you see that as part of? I, well, I think you're, you're right that uh, political sectarianism is, uh, <clears throat> at least in the United States and, and probably the UK and, and other European countries, is far more potent than religious sectarianism. Sometimes they, they're, they're confounded, at least in the United States, in the case of evangelical Christianity um, and, and uh, other conservative religious movements, uh, ultra-Orthodox Judaism uh, and uh, 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 other um, uh, illiberal religious movements. Right. Uh, and I also agree that the, it, it's through institutions that we can achieve rationality because what cognitive psychology has shown for more than 50 years is that individual humans are subject to a variety of fallacies and biases and, uh, and errors. <clears throat> but you know, nonetheless, as a species, we've made, managed to do some amazingly rational things like and vaccines and antibiotics and, 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 and synthetic fertilizers and uh, smartphones. We do it because we associate in, uh, in, in networks, in institutions, in, in associations that uh, allow ideas to be pooled and allow bad ideas to be criticized and filtered out. Uh, and, and so it, I, I certainly agree that the right kinds of institutions can make us more rational than uh, collectively than any of us can hope to be individually. Now, are religions that kind of institutions? Well, you're, I, I, again, I agree that there are some uh, principles that, that some religions advocate, uh, such as uh, sometimes forgiveness, although uh, the Old Testament is full of calls for vengeance. Uh, that's probably true. the dominant theme of the, of the <laughs> Uh, and of course, in practice, a lot of religions have been uh, not exactly paragons of forgiveness and tolerance, but rather of persecution and uh, ideological fervor. Um, so they can be if it's the right values and, uh, and, and if the, uh, <clears throat> the better aspects of religion, namely kind of civil society organizations getting people together for, to reflect and act for, for higher goods, uh, is the, the dominant theme of religions, as opposed to, uh, say, lobbying legislators to restrict uh, rights of freedom of, of expression or uh, 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 biological uh, advances in, in, in medicine and reproductive choice. 
So I think that you can't give a, a blanket um, evaluation of religions. It depends on what they do. More generally, what we ought to do is not, it shouldn't be religions or, 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 or irreligion. It should be the, the humanistic values that uh, we want to foster regardless of how many or which or any gods that we believe in or, or scriptures that we read to each other. The idea that we ought to deploy our intelligence to solve human afflictions, that we ought to foster uh, peaceful coexistence, cooperation, um, human well-being, and so on. Whether it's a religion or some other organization yeah. that, that does it is less important. Well, I jumped right in there to this idea of collective rationality that you talk about collective rationality versus individual rationality. So let's take a step back and, and if you can give us some explanation of what the differences are. And you mentioned like through institutions. So there is this idea for the greater good, we actually need this collective rationality. Can we take a step back and you can explain the difference in what you've seen in those two different forms of rationality through your research? Yeah, the, um, well, just a simple example is there, there's some classic logic puzzles that have been done in, in um, psychology labs and for that matter in classroom demos for, for 60 years, where people float elementary rules of logic, like to see whether the statement um, P implies Q is true. You've uh, got to look at the um, uh, cases that are P and not Q. So you've got to check out the P's, you've got to check out the non-Q's. And, and in simple tasks involving selection of cards with the four logical possibilities, a majority of people screw it up. I mean, it's a, forget the replicability crisis, this is highly replicable. I show it in my class year after year after year. But if you then put people in, in small groups, you ask them to reason through the very same problems, then now a majority of groups get it right because all it takes is for one person to spot the correct answer and they um, at least more than 70% of the time convince their group mates. Uh, and once they show it, everyone says, oh yes, of course. Uh, more generally, in institutions that have managed, you know, now and again to figure some things out and do some good things like science, like liberal democracies, like the court system, like the, the, the free press, there are always rules of um, open um, debate, free speech, criticism. No one gets to impose their idea by brute force, no matter how fancy schmancy a professor or a judge or a, a legislator you are, uh, someone else has the right to, to, to point out whether you're, if you're full of malarkey. Now that's essential because we know that people are overconfident about their own wisdom, their own virtue, their own correctness. They will happily use whatever levers of power they have to impose them, unless you have the channels by which someone else can say, hey, you know, there's a, there's a flaw in your argument or here's a, a fact that contradicts what you just said, then um, people can impose their, their, their views by, by uh, raw power. And so um, uh, fact-checking, editing, debate, peer review, adversarial processes, um, uh, parliamentary debates, letters to the editor, all of these channels are uh, what allow us to kind of eke out little increments of rationality, despite the fact that each one of us would rather pursue our truth than the truth. Yeah. Now, 
I want to get to some of the enlightenment values and namely uh, free speech, but you just said something and I'm, I'm chewing on this now. So help me work through this. One of the things that I see, another reason I think that we see more polarization, you know, in between World War I and World War II and through World War II, we really did have this more collective mindset. And it was after we, you know, we had to. And it was after World War II where we started to promote more ideas of individualism, individual rights, et cetera. And I think we became more disassociated from the collective. Then you add to that, you do add social media and some technological advances that can be isolating. Do you think that that in and of itself that we don't have, I mean, even Robert Putnam, I mean, years ago before social media talks about bowling alone, we started to move away from these community groups that I think were part of the glue to American society, if not society in general. Do you think that that threatens this idea of collective rationality? Well, not not necessarily, because remember that that era was also one in which uh, you know women were kept out of the workplace, yeah. in which uh, there was uh, a lot of institutional anti-Semitism uh, and, and, and uh, racial exclusion, um, yeah. Jim Crow laws. So the the old <clears throat> um, order was really unsustainable and really not not defensible as a whole, even if it did have some good good elements. The challenge also is just um, in, in a society that allows mobility, where you don't have to stay on the farm to, to, to help your parents or go into your dad's small business, in which you uh, do have access to the entire world through through media, uh, we, we just can't count on people um, you know, joining bowling leagues for their social interactions. It's just a world where we have to say goodbye to goodbye to. I, I don't belong to a bowling club. <laughs> I would just <laughs> use that because I love the, I love the title, you know, bowling alone. Um, are there, do you envision any other collective opportunities or, or do you see any right now that we could be using to a greater advantage for our rational future? Yeah. I mean, the, you know, I think we're, the, we can't turn back the clock on the technological changes in the way we associate, the way we communicate. No one's going to unplug the internet. Um, the question is, how do we get these newer institutions to exemplify the values that we that were promoted by the older ones, mm -hmm. uh, such as collective action for the for, for common common good, for, for worthy goals. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, by the way, uh, it doesn't mean we have to surrender to social media and just stay at home in front of the screen all the time. I mean, we can remind people of the advantages of actually <clears throat> you know, mingling, <laughs> interacting with other flesh and blood uh, people. But whatever combination of electronic and face-to-face -face meetings we gravitate to, they should all be um, steered toward the things that make them, that make any human worthwhile. We should try to concentrate the, uh, the good aspects while minimizing the bad aspects rather than saying uh, everything's gotten worse. Let's see if we can turn back the clock. Okay, so that brings me then to this idea of um, freedom of speech. We say that collective rationality, you say collective rationality, I think, needs rules. Uh, should there be 
what kind of well what kind of rules should be around freedom of speech this is a, a, an enlightenment value and well first i guess i'll stop there because i've got other questions but it, around that idea what kind of rules would be in our collective best interest around something like freedom of speech well we have to realize that, that freedom of speech truly is fundamental because if we're discussing freedom of speech or anything it presupposes that we have the right to express opinions that it stems from the fact that uh, that humans are fallible, that uh, people have been absolutely certain of beliefs which we now know to be false, that the only way that we can approach the to, uh, the, the truth or, or, or rational action is to uh, be able to voice opinions and have other people point out what's wrong with them uh, or what's right with them. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's an exertion of just raw power to, to, to shut down someone's right to express an opinion. There also has to be some clarity on uh, what are legitimate limits to speech, because there are such limits, but then people who haven't thought them through think, oh, well, uh, <laughs> you, can't, um, uh, you can't threaten someone with, uh, with death, so therefore there's no such thing as free speech, and if you say something that, uh, that makes me feel bad, I get to, I get to shut you down or, or punish you or fire you. Uh, there are, in discussions and jurisprudence on free speech, there are recognized limits. There are certain crimes that by their very nature are committed through speech and uh, therefore speech in those cases has to be limited or they wouldn't be crimes. Things like extortion and bribery and libel and incitement to uh, imminent violent activity. That is ending on a, uh, a mob to commit a pogrom or a, or a, a riot or, or an insurrection. Uh, there, I think there one can draw lines around those exercises of, of, uh, of speech simply because one can identify exactly what it is that is uh, that, that ought to be sanctioned. Uh, but one shouldn't be so fuzzy about speech uh, as to say, well, that just shows that free speech is a myth and I can shut down anyone who disagrees with me. So there needs to be that clarity. Uh, we have to remind ourselves of why we need free speech and, and when, when we do limit it, uh, how and why we limit it. How am I we limited? So on that, you know, the 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 world is going crazy right now over Twitter and what that means, the free speech and, and what Elon Musk's purchase is. If you could design a Twitter as a place of free speech and rational optimism, what changes would you make, if any? Well, there should be, I, I think there should be a little bit of uh sometimes called viscosity or friction, so that uh, mobs uh, um, fired up by, by retweets and likes uh, are less likely to form. That is, the, the, the virality uh, promoters should be tamped down to, to make everything a little bit more reflective. And there are a number of proposals for how to do that, such as limit on the number of retweets, um, uh, <clears throat> encouragement to repeat something before, uh, before uh, retweeting it. Um, there could, I think that there uh, could be transparent um, guidelines as to what uh, leads a, an account to be um, silenced or temporarily or, or permanently, such as uh, libel, such as incitement to violence, um, but not uh, just uh, unorthodox political opinions. Not it shouldn't be done algorithmically, at least given the current state of our algorithms, which are are very uh, crude and uh, blind to, to content. There should be reasonable appeal mechanisms. 
there should be you know, guide, guidelines on manners of speech of the kind that we have in, um, in say, letters to the editor without infringing on the content of the opinions. And uh, I think, at least I know, and, and probably everyone knows cases of, of um, uh, Twitterers who were shut down for mysterious opaque reasons. They, they you know, stepped on some uh, hot button, and uh, first they know they're 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 cancelled, and uh, it was not anything that uh, uh, which there could be a legitimate justification. At the same time, just for people to want to be on Twitter, uh, it can be a uh, kind of a, a cesspool of uh, of uh, insults and libels and uh, um, sorted accusations. Yeah, I just, I you know, it seems to be that's one of the new commons, if you will, and uh, it, it's a challenge. It's a, cha it's it a is, challenge. It is a, it is a challenge. It's a challenge. Thing, that's, that's a, I, that is a, <laughs> I mean, like, these are very rich corporations. They, they do have the resources to, mm -hmm. you know, to, to do more, more moderation and, and uh, but for it to be um, much more, uh, transparent, open to try to get the advantages of free speech without the the, the disadvantage. That given some traits in human nature, a, a completely unfettered ability to express oneself, especially anonymously, can lead to you know not to constructive discourse, to to collective pursuit of rationality, but but to its opposite. And I think we haven't we meaning the entire you know, universe of both users and producers of social media have not come across the um, uh, formula that tries to squeeze out the advantages without the disadvantages. There must be more experimentation and, uh, and then thought and analysis should be applied to this uh, dilemma. Oh, I absolutely agree. Before I let you go, I've got two two questions for you. You talk a lot about the tragedy of rationality commons, speaking of the commons. Can you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? Sure. The, the, the tragedy of the commons, a concept from uh, the ecologist Darren Hardin, uh, is the uh, scenario in which each person acting in his or her own self-interest uh, leads to an outcome that is worse for everyone, including themselves. The original case in the in the, in the, the uh, uh, parable was a town commons where uh, with grass and each shepherd has an incentive to graze his sheep on the town commons, uh, and um, for every individual shepherd, he can fatten his flock. But if all of them do it, then they can uh, graze denude the commons faster than the grass can grow back, grow back, and uh, all the sheep starve. Uh, in the case of the tragedy, the rationality comments, it's each person pursuing goals such as um, uh, signaling that they are virtuous, boasting that they are right, being infallible, putting down their, their rivals. Each one of them is uh, kind of pursuing something that is uh, in their own interest. But in terms of the collective interest of approaching um, the, the, the truth or approaching the course of action that will make us all better off, we're worse off if that's the criterion by which people express themselves. Okay, so, oh, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. So the, the, the solutions to a tragedy of the commons typically uh, involve some kind of voluntary or some kind of regulation where 
if there are you know, grazing permits, uh, if you have to pay to graze your, 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 your sheep on the commons, then that naturally limits it to some sustainable number. And likewise, there, there ought to be, if not um, uh, you know, laws that punish people, but at least norms of, uh, of um, respectful disagreement, of criticism, uh, you know, peer review, editing, that will uh, uh, allow the collective group to debate its way to greater truth. And so on that last question, do you, where do you see a link between this tragedy of rationality commons and our increased polarization? And to end on a note, I know you're an optimist. I like to think I am too. Where do you see, are we overplaying these, this idea of polarization or do you see a place in this environment now where we can overcome the pressure of polarization as we see it today? Yeah, I think, um, uh, you know, I don't consider myself an optimist so much as someone who follows and, and, and tries to document trends and uh, the, 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 the examples of um, declines in violence, declines in uh, disease, declines in illiteracy that I've documented are really just pointing out data that most people are unaware of. Yeah. Uh, but none of these things happen by themselves, by magic. There's no such force as progress that, that makes things better. It all depends on pushing the right ideas. And in this case, the right ideas are um, uh, evaluation of ideas by their merits, by their empirical consequences, by their logical consistency, as uh, <clears throat> guidelines, as goals of our major organizations and channels of communication. So editors and deans and um, uh, uh, presidents of organizations should be aware that their, their, their remit, their, their mission statement ought to be, uh, how do we, how does this you know, bumbling, fallible, fallacy-prone species manage to blunder its way toward an understanding of reality and action that makes us better off. Um, that's what we ought to be aiming for. How do we do it? Not by calling each other um, names, uh, demonizing each other, but by uh, broaching ideas and, and trying to point out what's wrong with them. Mm. That, that should be, you know, sadly, it's not a, uh, 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 acknowledged by uh, many of our editors and, 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 and deans and university presidents, but it ought to be, and there should be uh, associations like uh, like Counterweight that, that uh, advocate these values. Yeah, and it's that engagement too. I mean, I guess that's where I worry as well is it's leaning into other people and that's hard to do sometimes when you're behind a screen. So hopefully, yeah, that this is advocated within not just universities, but in other social organizations too. So absolutely, here we, here we are. Yes. <laughs> well, I appreciate your time today. Thank you for, for sharing with us your wisdom. Pleasure talking to you, Jennifer. And, uh, good luck in the work that you do. Thank you.